Let's dive in this morning, guys. Uh, just wanted to, uh, by way of note, this will be our last uh, sermon in this series. Uh, for We're suspending zest for a moment, and we're going to be heading into some Christmas-themed uh, Sundays where we'll be uh, just um, talking about Advent and the coming of Christ and the incarnation of God in human form. And so we're going to go over, after this Sunday, we're going to go through the next three Sundays and be really focused on uh, the theme of Christmas and the theme of Advent and the, and the uh, anticipation of Christ coming and celebrating that. So we're not going to pick up our, uh, our series and our study on the Holy Spirit until probably the last Sunday of December, the last Sunday of December. But this is a really good breaking point because uh, we are going to finish up the attributes of the Holy Spirit. We're going to not finish up the attributes. We're going to finish up uh, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've been talking about how the Holy Spirit is a person, and we've been talking about how the Holy Spirit has will, has affections. Um, he has, um, well, he has a will, he has uh, affections, and he also has a purpose, and he has a performance. So we're going to be looking at the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming up. We're going to be looking at the performance, what he does coming up in January. But this morning, we're going to round out our study and our time uh, with the Holy Spirit, studying him, understanding him. Uh, by finally looking at the final piece of this p- personhood of his will, the personhood and his will this morning. Um, and, it's, and it's really interesting because oftentimes we don't necessarily think of the Holy Spirit as a person. But in order to understand the Holy Spirit accurately, we have to understand him in these terms because that's how he's presented himself in the scriptures. He has used his own word to describe who he is. And if we can't come in line with the scriptures to understand the person of the Holy Spirit, we will be worshiping a different spirit. We will have a different view of the Holy Spirit than the one that is in scripture. So for us to go through the word of God and to understand the word of the spirit and to, and to dissect what God says about himself with regards to who he is as the Holy Spirit is critical for our worship. It's critical for our worship. So this morning, we're going to look at his will, and we're going to finally end here uh, for the time being. So let's pray this morning uh, before we dive in. Father, we just thank you, God, uh, for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we thank you that you've given us your revealed word. And God, that we can know you and experience you and understand you because you have displayed yourself to us. God, you have written about yourself to humanity. And God, I pray that as we come before you this morning, God, as we dive in, as we sort of feast on the word of God, your word, God, that it would satiate us, that it would fill us, that God, that it would bring a sense of satisfaction to us, God, that we, we are, are moving into a, a greater reality of knowing you and understanding you. And you have given us this revealed word so for that very expressed purpose, for you to be displayed amongst your people. And God, as we consider the truth of your word this morning, God, I pray that you would show us through everyday life that you would witness to the truth of your word as we leave this morning. That God, it's not about just reading words on a page or information being being, uh, consumed, but God, it is your revealed word. It is your truth that leads to transformation. 
And so, God, I pray for a spiritual work in the heart of every person this morning. God, because we cannot grasp you, we cannot understand you, we cannot uh, understand the depths of who you are outside of a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There is nothing we can do. We are, we are uh, incapable of running towards you, seeking you, understanding you, God, unless you reveal yourself to us. So our prayer this morning is, God, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning through the power of your word and through the work of your spirit that does all spiritual things in our hearts. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So the will of the spirit, part four, part four. Um, I want to start here. Anybody familiar with A.W. Tozer? Anybody familiar with A.W. Tozer? Wonderful theologian and wonderful scholar. He says this, uh, we can know the right words, yet never be changed. Isn't that true? This is the difference between information and transformation. This is the difference between information and transformation. That, that what we do in this section, in this portion of our time together, is not just simply about gathering information. Yes, we are an, on an investigatory quest to know God. But this is not just simply facts that we're looking for. This is much more than that. This is truth that is going to penetrate your heart. Because if the truth doesn't penetrate your heart and do a work in you, this will just be words on a page. It will mean nothing and it will do nothing for you. So it is much more than just information we are seeking. It's transformation this morning. I want us to turn to Ezekiel. You, can, you don't have to go here, but John, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. Um, I'm going to start out in Ezekiel for a moment um, and just read to you um, sort of Ezekiel's call. And I want you to see uh, the relationship that God desires his people to have with his revealed word. This is so beautiful. This is the calling of Ezekiel. He says this. And he said to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. By the way, this is sort of a, a foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the spirit rested on people for particular purposes in particular times, but never indwelt them eternally. It is a foreshadowing, though, of what was to come when Christ ascended and he sent the Spirit to live in you, not just temporarily, but eternally. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. Sounds a lot like me. Send you to them and you shall say to them, and it probably sounds a lot like you even though you won't admit it. Ah, thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, not, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Man, Ezekiel led a beautiful life. Prophets lead beautiful lives, you know? Prophets lead lives of abundance, you know? I mean, they are highly favored amongst the people of God. At least they never used to be, but that's neither here nor there. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them. 
whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. That's what you're supposed to do this morning. Open your mouth and feast on the words of God as they are declared this morning. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the back and on the front, and there were written on on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Chapter 3, and he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go before it to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll and I will give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Whoa, that is our relationship with the word of God right there. It is to be feasted on in copious amounts, abundantly. Why? Because it is what feeds the soul. It's what feeds your soul, Christian. And God says, come and eat. Come and eat of what I provide for you through my very word. So that is what we are to do this morning. So our view of God is foundational. And the foundational reality of what we think about God is determined by what we, what we know or what we believe about the Holy Spirit. That, why, that is why it is so critical for us to understand the trueness of the Holy Spirit with regards to, in accord to, in agreement with what he has said about himself. So our aim this morning is to seek the trueness of the Holy Spirit and to understand him. And the only way we understand him is through uh, an enlarged heart that, that our view and our understanding of the Holy Spirit would be enlarged by the scriptures and that our hearts would, would rise up in praise to God and that our love for the Holy Spirit would increase and that our worship of the Holy Spirit would reach the highest heights of praise. That is our desire this morning as we hear God speak about himself. So our claim this morning is this. As a divine person, the Holy Spirit possesses a will. Yes, right. The Holy Spirit has a will and accomplishes the purposes of God as God. Through his effectual work. And his work comes from his will. In other words, God only does what he determines to do. And God never ceases and never fails at accomplishing something that he decides to do. Because he is sovereign in his will and his work comes out of his sovereign will. So we've been looking at the will of God over the last, or the Holy Spirit over the last four weeks. And we've basically leaned on these two things. We've landed on these two things. That God has two wills, right? If you've been here over the last four weeks when we've done these, God has two wills. One is his sovereign will. That is one that is secret, unknowable. We don't know. We're left to guess. But it is a will that God possesses and and possesses. Sorry, he proclaim, He doesn't proclaim it, but he performs it. But he, it's a secret will that we're not pervy to know. And then there's a will that God desires us to know. And we talked about that last week. And that is his preceptive will. That is a will that God has shown us. That is knowable to us. That is understandable. And he reveals it to us through his commands and through his word. And those are the two wills. 
And so we're going to land here finally on this last portion. And I'm going to look at again the idea of God's sovereign will. And this really has tremendous implications for your life. It is going to be a reason why you celebrate God this morning after we're done. Once we get through this text. Because it's an amazing, it's an amazing illustration of God's sovereign will in your life. And it was actually uh, kind of touched upon in communion this morning. But I want to draw your attention to John chapter 3. If you want to go there with me, John chapter 3 has this beautiful exchange, this discourse between uh, Jesus and, and Nicodemus. And this text provides for us an abundant understanding of God's sovereign will and how he works his sovereign will and how it is that he does these things. And it provides for us a glimpse into how the Holy Spirit works and how we are to understand how he works. So John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Just for a moment, I just want to kind of of lay the landscape of John for a moment. John's gospel is very different than every every other gospel. As Matthew really was writing to the Jews to try to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah and laid out all of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. You know, Mark was more of the guy of miracles. He just, these staccato-like portraits of Jesus and Mark, he just shows you miracle after miracle after miracle, sign and wonder after sign and wonder. Very short, abrupt, to the point. Luke was very methodical. As a, as, a, as a doctor, as a Greek, uh, he really laid out the, the, the life of Christ in a very logical way, methodical way. And, but John does this totally different approach to Jesus' life. John's main emphasis is the supreme divineness of Christ. He wants everyone to know, he wants his readers to know that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It's a theological masterpiece that presents Christ in his supremacy. That Christ was not merely a spokesperson for God, but he was God. He wasn't just another prophet, but he was God. We see this in John chapter 1, 9 through 14. John says this about Jesus. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Interestingly, John lays it out in those ways. In other words, John is, John is sort of foreshadowing what he's about to do with Nicodemus. He says, you have the right to be children of God. All of you have a right to be children of God. Not because you were born into a certain race or into a certain family. Right? Look what he says. Not of blood. It has nothing to do with your physiological makeup nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, you cannot will yourself into the kingdom of God. You cannot work yourself into the kingdom of God. Not of blood, not of will, and not of the will of man. No one else can pronounce you a child of God. No other man, no other woman can pronounce you a child of God. You are not relying on anyone else's faith for your entrance into the kingdom of God. 
And this works perfectly with the story of Nicodemus. So John shows Christ as the embodiment of righteousness, the personification of the truth. He not only spoke the truth, but he was the personification of the truth. He was much greater than anyone that came before him who spoke on behalf of God. John 147, Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. He sees Nathanael in, uh, in, in John chapter 1. He sees Nathanael, and what does he do? He perfectly evaluates the condition of Nathanael's heart. What does he say to Nathanael? He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is supreme in evaluating your heart like no one else can. Evaluating your motives, evaluating your desires, evaluating your character, knowing you like no one else does. John chapter 2, verse 11, the story of the wedding in Cana. Jesus makes manifest his glory, not the glory of the Father, his glory. Why? Because Jesus is God. A glory that is inseparable with God. He demonstrates a masterful sway over the physical elements by simply taking water and turning it into wine. So here we have John just painting this picture of Jesus. And then we get to verse, or chapter 3, and this is what John says. This is the account for this morning. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these things, and no one can do these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's room and be born? Nicodemus is very confused here. Jesus had a really good way of confusing people. <laughs> and I, you know what? You know what's interesting? Jesus has a really great, great way of not answering people's questions. That's really interesting. You know, that makes me feel a little bit better when I have to entertain a question I don't like and I just don't want to answer it. But like Jesus did that too, so I could do that. He had a really great way of not answering people's questions. He got to the heart of the matter pretty quickly. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, do not, or sorry, uh, sorry, 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 sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It says beautiful implications as to how God moves and how God works in his sovereignty. So let me begin here. Verse 1 through 4, we see Nicodemus' ignorance of, of Christ. Right? Two points here. Nicodemus is unable to see Christ for who he truly is. Point number two, Nicodemus is ignorant regarding the way of salvation. Look at what he says uh, about Jesus in that verse. He says this, Rabbi, which is another word for teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus doesn't entertain his glowing response 
Jesus isn't concerned. Jesus doesn't respond. He says, you know, I really appreciate that, Nicodemus. It's really nice of you to offer that compliment of me. You know? He gets to the point. He gets to the point and deals with Nicodemus' spiritual blindness. He is unable to see Christ for who he truly is. Think about this. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Some of you guys who know about the Pharisees, study the Pharisees, right? They are Pharisees. They are, in the Hebrew, separate, or sorry, in the Greek, separated ones. They are separate. They are other than. They're teachers of the law. They're keepers of the law. Now, Nicodemus, he was earnest. He was an earnest man, a respectful man. He modeled a fervent desire to follow God. He had a zealous adherence to the word of God and to the commands of God. He was, as John says, a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he was a judge of sorts. He sort of sat on what we would consider the Supreme Court in that day. So he essentially was a gatekeeper of moral conduct. He had all his T's crossed, all his I's dotted. He considered himself righteous before God, keeping the law of God and the commands of God and teaching others to do the same and holding others accountable for that. He also held to this thing called the tradition of the elders. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this was a, another set of commands that they imposed on the Jewish people that was not part of God's law in the Old Testament. It was a different kind of law. It was an oral tradition. And they said, not only should you keep God's law that you've been given by Moses, but you also need to keep this oral law. In other words, whatever we tell you, that is how you are to worship and follow God. But interestingly, in this meeting that he has with Jesus, this man, this upright man, this, this respected man in the culture that's filled with wisdom and knows God and leads people to God and makes righteous judgments about everyone's conduct, he comes to Jesus and is profoundly ignorant. Profoundly ignorant of God. Profoundly ignorant of how to enter into the kingdom. Look what he says here. Rabbi, we know that you are a good teacher. And you come from God. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He's incapable of seeing Christ as he truly is. Why? We'll find out in a moment. Because he is not born again. He's been born once. But that doesn't qualify him. You must be born again. You must be born again. So in his unregenerated state, in his mind, and his heart, he doesn't see Christ for who he is. And his rejection of Christ was a product of his spiritual blindness. He could not understand the divine authority of God. He sure went out of his way to compliment Christ. Sure went out of his way to, to, to lend to him some kind words, right? But, but here's what we have to understand. Christ was not merely another teacher. He was not merely a prophet sent by God. He was not a teacher among teachers. He was, he was not some trendy cultural philosopher persuading men through human wisdom. Christ was merely, wasn't merely speaking for God as a prophet. This is what he did. He spoke for himself as God. 
So he didn't speak for God. He spoke as himself, as God. Big difference. And Christ was not interested in Nicodemus's glowing evaluation of him. What is the worth of man's opinion of God, really? What is the worth of man's opinion of God when compared to the immeasurable value of God? Right? I mean, am I that concerned with what, how people value God? Yeah, I guess so. But am I going to base my understanding of God on the opinions of men? No. My worship of God comes from what I know and love about God. Not so much about what other people say about him. So Jesus doesn't answer the question. Even though he knows Nicodemus is coming in for, for something. Jesus perfectly understands the blindness that, that Nicodemus has. And, and he says to him, oh, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Interestingly enough, Nicodemus could not see Christ for who he truly was and therefore could not see the kingdom. Because in order to see the kingdom and to be a child of the kingdom and to have a right to the kingdom... You must understand Christ for who he truly is. You must confess him and witness to him and bear witness to Christ as he truly is, as the God-man. Not a prophet, not a teacher, but the Messiah who has come to fulfill everything that God has prepared for him to walk through. So he says to Nicodemus, you cannot see me for who I truly am. You definitely can't understand the kingdom. He was incapable of understanding the true way of salvation. He relied, this is what he did. He relied on the externals of his religious performance. He relied on the externals for all of this for salvation. Yeah, he demonstrated a zealousness for ritual and religious perfection and purity and moral perfection and thinking that he that somehow his his work and his his you know his obedience to god was it was a ticket into the kingdom that's what he was taught that's what he knew and jesus comes to him and says your work gets you nowhere your work gets you absolutely nowhere with god What Nicodemus was doing was neglecting the grace of God. Nicodemus relied on his lineage. Nicodemus relied on his performance. Nicodemus relied on his self-righteousness as the grounds for salvation. And Jesus comes along and says, none of these things will get you there. None of these things will get you there. So he dismantles this assumption that racial identity or first birth or adherence to the law or God's commands qualifies anyone for the kingdom of God. He said, it's not about your first birth. 
that qualifies you. I know you're relying on your lineage and on your heritage and on your tradition and and on the line in which you came from and and all of these external things. He says, you're relying on, on all of these things as a way to qualify you for the kingdom of God. It's exactly what John said in chapter one. He said this, who is born of the kingdom of God? Who is given the right to become children of God? Those who are born of blood? Nope. Those who are born of the will of the flesh? Nope. Those who are born of the will of man? Nope. How are you? You're born of God. You're born of God. And that's essentially what Jesus is trying to tell So the assurance is revealed in a new birth. Your assurance into the kingdom, your right as a child of God to participate in the kingdom of Christ that is coming, that's never going to end. This right, this assurance comes from your new birth that you would trust, that you would hear the gospel, you would turn from your ways and you would turn to God and you would live for him. Not because that is what saves you, but that is, that is what motivates you to love him. It is his grace alone. So Jesus lays out these terms for Nicodemus. But the Pharisees rejected this notion because they had no place in their heart for the word of Christ. You should think about this for a moment. They had no place in their heart for the word of Christ. I ask you this morning, do you have a place in your heart for the word of Christ? Or do you simply rely on your spiritual performance? Do you simply think that you are garnering favor with God because of your spirituality? Mm. Or do you just trust? Do you just trust? Let me just say, it's not that you are not to pursue sanctification. It's not that you're not to pursue the gifts of the Spirit. It's not that you're not to desire the fruits of the Spirit, to live a life of godliness before Christ and to honor Him with your life and with your conduct and your behavior. But are you simply relying on that because it's something you can control? That's what Nicodemus always fell back on things that were within the realm of his own control. And Jesus said, you cannot, you actually can't determine whether you're saved or not. And that's what we're going to get to in the end of the text. But they found no word. They had no room for Christ in their heart. Look with me in John chapter eight, if you want to go there, 31 to 47. Jesus has this encounter with, The Pharisees, he says this to them. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? We're already free. We're in the line of Abraham. We have all the promises. God is, God is, Uh, delivered us from 
every affliction, all slavery. Jesus answered, and truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring lineage of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word, watch this, finds no place in you. Ooh, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Back to lineage, back to tradition, right back to what they could rely on, what they could control. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What were the works that Abraham did? Did Abraham believe God by good works? What was God's promise to Abraham? That I would give you descendants throughout the world if you would just believe in me by faith. Abraham's work was a work of faith. And Jesus said, your work is not a work of faith. Your work is a work of performance. He said, you be doing the works that Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham did not reject God. Abraham loved God. Abraham lived for God. Abraham had faith in God. Even when there seemed like no hope in his life for children, for, for, for descendants, for offspring, God made a promise to him. And what did Abraham do? Abraham believed. Believed. Pure and simple, he believed. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot, here it is again, bear to hear my word. They rejected Christ because they could find no place in their heart for his word. The challenge for us this morning, for you, is do you find a place in your heart for the word of Christ? Have you made room do you like to feast? Are you satiated by the word of Christ? Do you consider his gospel to be the most wonderful thing that has ever taken place in your life? Have you considered the good news of Christ and what he has done for you? That he has gone to the cross for you. And he has bled and died for you. And he has forgiven you. And he has redeemed you and he has rescued you from the power of this age. And he has transferred you into the kingdom of his marvelous lights. Where truth becomes what you desire. And the word of God is what you hunger for and are satisfied with. Romans 10 one through four, Paul says this about his Jewish brethren. He says this, brothers, <laughs> my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about his Jewish brothers here. I mean, these are all guys that think they're, they're, they've, got their, they've got the golden ticket. 
They're on their way and salvation is secure for them and they have it all laid out and they follow the law and they are righteous in, in God's eyes. But Paul says, man, my prayer is that they would be saved because it only comes through Christ and the gospel, right? But I bear, for I bear them witness that they, they have a zeal for God. Watch this. They have a zeal. Oh, they got a passion for God. They got a desire for God. They, they, they try their best to follow after God. But watch this. Not according to knowledge. Oh, they did not know Christ. They did not receive Christ. They couldn't, they couldn't receive the word of Christ in their heart. So in other words, they were ignorant of God because they rejected Christ. He said, oh, they, got, they, they want to chase after God and they have a zeal for God, but, but not according to the knowledge of Christ. For they've rejected him and, and by their rejection, they show their ignorance and their unwillingness to believe. <laughs> Interestingly enough, he says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Oh, how easy it is for us to be ignorant of the righteousness of God. How we diminish God's righteousness. And we don't consider how righteous God really is. And, and this is what he does. When we diminish that, watch what Paul says. He seek or they seek to establish their own. And what's the result? Watch this. They did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they considered God's righteousness less than what it was, and they considered their own to be greater than what it was. And what's the result? They reject God altogether. That's what was happening with Nicodemus. Oh, he considered his self-righteousness to be you know, on par with the best. He was the model for everyone to follow. But in his own self-righteousness, he was actually rejecting the righteousness of God and could not bring himself to know and understand the personification of righteousness that's standing before him. Paul ends here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, <laughs> you don't need to rely on the law. You don't need to rely on your good works, the commands of God, and keep them perfectly in order to receive the righteousness of God. Why? Because Christ has done that for you in your place. God has stood in your place on the cross, so now that God can see you as he sees Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Christ has gone, has become sin for you so that you can be the righteousness of God. Now God sees you as Christ because Christ stood in your place at the cross. So if you're going to believe, and if you're going to be a child of God, and you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you need to put your self-righteousness away and believe that you can earn your way to God's grace. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3. He says this in verse 16 and 17. He says this. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. What does richly mean? Abundantly. Everlastingly. Without end. Without measure. Richly. Let it dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing you. With all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
So here we see Nicodemus could not receive the word of God, could not receive Christ because of his spiritual blindness, because he relied too much on his own self-righteousness. And then we come to this point where we see the true terms of salvation that Jesus lays out. Jesus has to kind of press it a little more here. He says, okay, first, the first statement is, is you can't be born again or you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Then he begins to give more clarity to the statement. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirits, he cannot enter the kingdom of God because Nicodemus is looking for another way in. He said, well, how am I going to go back into my mother's room? How am I going to be born physically again? I mean, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Jesus says, okay, man, let me clarify you for you a little more here. You cannot enter unless one is born of water and spirit. Water and spirit. Here we see Christ sets the terms of your salvation. He solely sets the terms for you. It is not up to you. You have no opinion in the matter. God does not you know, appeal to your counsel when he determines how he's going to save you. Jesus lays out the terms pretty clearly. He says, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. Jesus not only determines how one is saved, but he initiates, maintains, and, com and completes the process. Unless one is born of water and the spirit. Some people think that this is a reference to baptism. I don't think it is because Nicodemus would not be familiar with baptism. Some others have some other speculations about what Jesus is referring to here when he uses this couplet, water and spirit. But I think the best way to understand this is to actually look at the Old Testament. Unless one is born of water and spirit has a familiar ring to it, if you're familiar with Ezekiel the prophet. Let me just say this, that being born again is marked by two necessary elements. They are distinct, but inseparable. The rebirth that is necessary for you and for me comes by a sovereign work of the Spirit. This is the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit, not a work of the flesh. And it's the work of a Spirit, or the Spirit, as a cleansing agent where the recipient is washed clean from their sin. It's not a physical event that needs to be relived or re-experienced, as Nicodemus was trying to understand. He thought he had to relive a birth or re-experience a birth that he once had. He thought he had to go through a first birth again. And Jesus said, no, you don't have to go through a first birth again. You have to go through the second birth. It's not of flesh, but it is of the spirits. And it is a cleansing event. It is the water of the spirit that comes and cleanses you, cleanses your conscience, renews your mind, washes your heart. This is what you need. This is what Nicodemus needs. This is what we need in our rebirthing process. Ezekiel 36. This is, I think, where Jesus is going here. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27 says this. 
This is God's promise to Israel. And the new covenant promise to Israel that is fulfilled in Christ. Watch this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all of the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and watch this, a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So here we have this coupling of the spirit work in the man. The spirit work that Ezekiel is prophesying in Israel is the spirit work that is happening, that is creating and growing and flourishing the church in the earth. It is God coming to unbelievers and saving them through the power of the spirit and through the cleansing of their sin. And this is what we experience as born-again believers. This very rebirth that Jesus is referring to. So the spirit performs a regenerating work through the cleansing of the mind and it produces a radical shift in the disposition of your heart. A repentance towards God as the gospel of Christ is preached and declared. The spirit works conviction in the heart of everyone who hears. That is what Jesus is referring to. Paul makes mention of this in Titus chapter 3, 4 through 7. Look what he says here. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved you, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Here we are again with this works thing, right? Nicodemus is relying on, not by works of righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. God saves you because he's merciful to you. God saves you because he is gracious to you. God saves you because he loves you. It's accord with his mercy. And watch what Paul says, by the washing of regeneration. Here it is again, the cleansing of the spirit of God, washing the church, washing your heart, cleansing your mind so that you can actually know and pursue and desire righteousness before God. This is the work of the spirit in you this morning. Don't think that this is over for you. God is still working in you, sanctifying you, setting you apart, calling you holy, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that Christ has done on your behalf. Watch this. He poured out on us richly. Here it is. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus continues and says, if more clarity is needed, I'll give it to you, Nicodemus. 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. What is he saying? Flesh or humanness can only produce that which is flesh. Likewise, man cannot produce spiritual regeneration. You cannot regenerate yourself. You cannot renew yourself. You produce flesh. You produce what is fleshy. You desire natural human things. And typically that's characterized by pride, you know, selfishness, thinking about yourself first. All of these things are produced within your flesh. And flesh gives birth to flesh. But spirit gives birth to spirit. Why? Because your regeneration comes from God alone. You have no ability to do this in your own strength. And that's what Nicodemus is trying to do. So that which is of the flesh cannot produce spiritual life. No, for we are born dead. We are born alienated from God. And so it stands that spiritual regeneration that occurs in a man is not the result of one's own spiritual ability or busy work, but it is because God has decided to work in you, your regeneration. So as the first birth brought forth physical life, which will reach its end in death, your life will end. Your physical, unless Jesus returns, obviously let's qualify that, right? Your life will end. Your life will end because death reigns in the mortal body because of sin. So you die because of sin. The whole earth is dying because of sin, because we are under the curse of sin. So everything is going to die. You're going to die. I'm sorry. I'm, if you came here for good news the whole time, I'm sorry. This is kind of bad news. But you got to hear the bad news before you hear the good news. You will die. Our mortality is constantly in our face. We don't know the time. Our life is finite. So that death, that birth that we experienced, that first one, that's going to lead to death. But the second birth, ooh, this is the good news. The second birth, the one that God has worked in you if you're a believer, the one that God has birthed in you as a believer, the one that God is forming in you and, and completing in you by faith in Christ, this birth, this new birth, this produces life which has no end for it is eternal. And that's what you have if you are in him. So lastly, verse seven and eight, this is where we get to the work of the spirit. Here is the true work of salvation. Who does it? The spirit. So contrary to the belief of Nicodemus thinking he could manage the state of his own salvation by his good works, watch this. Regeneration is accomplished in the heart of every man by the secret work of the spirit bursting forth with vitality in you. And this comes from the sovereign will of God. Look what he says here. He says, hey, do not marvel. Don't be astonished at what I told you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying here? You cannot control the Holy Spirit. Like the wind, he can't be controlled. He can't be manipulated. He can't be even understood or anticipated. But his work happens in accord with his sovereign will. And it's out of your control. You cannot determine what the Holy Spirit does. You cannot anticipate what he does. And consequently, like the wind, the unpredictable work of the Spirit may not be visible to the naked eye. When I see the wind, when you look at the wind, you can't see the wind, but you can sure perceive of its effects. You see the wind blow, or you hear the wind blowing, you see the leaves rustling, you see uh, leaves maybe coming through the ground or, or going across the ground. You see the effects of the wind, but you cannot perceive it with your naked eye. It is like this with the Spirit of God who works his perfect will. And it's a sovereign will that is secret. So its effects are perceivable, they're undeniable, and they're far-reaching, even though you can't understand. And God has made it that way for a reason. God has given or has shown us that he has a secret will and that he's performing it perfectly and he's doing it in a way that is mysterious. And God saves in this way. So salvation rests solely on the sufficient work of Christ. Salvation is accomplished by the grace of God. Salvation cleanses us from sin. Salvation is the work of the Spirit in regeneration. And this causes us to have, this should cause us uh, in our hearts and in our minds to behold the beauty of God and the mysteriousness of God. Because it is not because you have chosen to be saved, but it's because God has set his heart on you and his mind on you and his sights on you. And he has said to himself, that person is mine. And so when the spirit comes and the spirit works, the spirit works in secret and he does things that you don't understand. And he does things that you can't perceive, but you sure can understand the effects of them. I I don't know about you, but when, I first got saved, I had no idea what was going on. Like I didn't. I had no idea what was going on in my life. Like I knew something was happening and I knew there was a change taking place and I knew that something was going on in me and I knew that my heart was changing and my disposition and my love for God was changing and I was embracing Christ and the truth and I was being filled with the spirit and I was receiving wisdom and knowledge about who God was, right? And, and, and this thing was all happening, but I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't perceive what God was doing but I saw the effects. And and that causes me to give great glory to God as it should you this morning. And if you're sitting here this morning and you call Christ your Savior and you've believed and you've heard and you've turned to God and now you want to live for God and your desire is to know God and to worship God, right? There's this beautiful transaction that's taking place within your heart and in your mind and in your soul, and it's something that you can't describe and can't perceive, but you know what's going on. And it's all done by the grace of God, and that's what I I want you to understand this morning is that when we're talking about the will of God, yeah, the will of God is knowable to us in a certain way, but there's ways in which God works that is is inconceivable and secret, and he, he doesn't want us to know, and we need to be okay with that.
but God is working and moving in your life in ways that you cannot understand. And praise him this morning. Give him glory and honor this morning for what he's done in your life because he deserves it. And so as we end this morning talking about the will of God, thank him, praise him, give him glory this morning, give him honor in your life for doing something that only he can do in you. Because God saves you, he saves me in spite of ourselves. That's what he does. He saves you and he saves me in spite of ourselves. He cleanses us and rebirths us and regenerates us. Spiritual rebirth, I'll end here, and salvation takes its rightful place at the summit of the mountain of God's sovereign will. In other words, the zenith of the Holy Spirit's sovereign counsel is expressed in the accomplishment of our salvation in spite of ourselves. He does this through his loving kindness and his commitment to remain true to his name as a just and gracious God. And that, I think, is a great way to understand how to see the will of God in your life. Thank him for it. Amen? Amen. I'll stand.